I'm Elizabeth Ray. I'm Alistair Stevens. And Tom Cruise is Vincent Loria in The Color of Money. I love the care you took with that name. Just, <laughs> I had a hell of a time remembering anybody's name in this movie. It's hard movie to remember really any clear details about when it comes to characters and plot, I feel like. I remember the mirror dance and I remember the pool balls clacking into one another and all of these interesting shots we're doing with the camera work and the fierce editing that we're getting. But the movie itself is kind of a dream, I feel like, that I had last night and now I'm trying to piece together for a podcast. <laughs> you know? You did, in full disclosure, watch the movie last night. So I maybe did watch that's the movie last feeling. night yeah. and it's it's... So it's not that it's not clear to me. And I have notes and I don't know how you felt about it, but I was watching the movie and then the movie was over. That Did is absolutely, that? yes, absolutely fair. Okay. That is how this movie ends is it stops. Yes. And it feels. <laughs> Almost like, oh no, did the internet go out? Like, it feels like it it's making out? a point. It feels like it's building to something. Mm. And I think arguably it does. It is. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm not sure how much there is there. We're discussing this movie far sooner in this podcast episode than we usually do. Normally there's some preamble, normally there's some business, normally there's an introduction. But I think we're both a little baffled by this movie. I think so. And I'm interested to hear from you because you've done so much more work and research. You also watched The Hustler. I did watch The Hustler. You read The Hustler or most of? I did of? read The Hustler. Okay. Yes. And then was there another sequel book that there covered was. money? Did you read yeah. that? I, re I looked at it enough to get that it was the same kind of writing style okay. as, as Walter Tevis's first book. Yeah. Okay. So I'm hoping that you're going to be able to help me get some of these pieces to fall into place. But now well, I'm frankly, wondering. I'm hoping so too. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, all of this research was for naught. Before we get to that, though, I've got to do the trailer game, and I don't know where to start oh, with this. yeah. This is exactly a Exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. How the hell are you going to do the trailer game? I'm interested to hear it. I, maybe, maybe it'll be, you know, abstract. <laughs> the movie's kind of <laughs> Visualizations of pool balls clacking yes. into one another. <laughs> After 25 years, Paul Newman is back as Fast Eddie Felsen. Or maybe that's just what he wants you to think. <laughs> I'll bet you $20 I can name Tom Cruise's character right here, right now. <laughs> Vincent Price. Damn, you took me for all my money. How about this? How about Double or Nothing? Double or Nothing that I can tell you the name of Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio's character. <laughs> Carmen. Last name? No last name. This is a Scorsese film. What's a woman going to do with a last name? <laughs> Following up, the blockbuster success of Top Gun, Tom Cruise is very weird and quiet in Martin Scorsese's The Color of Money. Mm. So I guess we should take care of this fairly quickly, fairly briefly. You are not the world's biggest fan of Martin Scorsese, or at least the work of Martin Scorsese. Yeah. Well, I think being generally positive about the man himself, right? I, I am told I ought to be positive about the man himself, and so I am trying to continue to give him, you know, the, the, the whole tip my hat, the due respect that the sure. man has, has apparently earned. Uh, For being one of the pillars of modern yeah. American cinema. Like, it, it's difficult to extricate his influence oh, from cinema in general over the last 30, 40 years. Yeah, and I'm not usually somebody who has what you might call an authority problem, like, in general. I'm not 
typically I'm more of a teacher's pet type. Sure. <laughs> so I would imagine that, you know, I would want Scorsese to be like, oh, let's work together. But I, I just have trouble. I don't think that his films are made for me. I feel that his films are made for men with the only exception being the Edith Wharton, The Age of Innocence, which I do love very much. I would have to, yeah, look at that very closely because I think, broadly speaking, you're completely correct. Scorsese mm. has little to say about or to women. Yeah. He's very preoccupied with not even masculinity in general, but a particular kind of flawed, tragic masculinity. Yeah, and a swaggering kind of flaw and tragic, yeah. which I don't care for. Like, I don't mind flawed and tragic when they're like... Deeply romantic. I'm thinking again of uh, of the Edith Wharton character, uh, who's just trying to do the honorable thing without completely losing his sense of self. That is interesting Which is to me. A recurring theme in Scorsese's work, yes. Yes, but I think more often you see just characters that I cannot root for or care about. I'm not one that that gets off on rooting for the villain. I know that a lot of people do and find that kind of work exciting and fun. And I understand the reasons why, even like psychologically. Yeah. It just doesn't usually work for me. There's a lot of that, I think, that comes from Scorsese's roots and the, the, the time at which he enters the industry. Mm -hmm. We are in like proto-New Hollywood at that point. We are becoming grittier storytellers mm. we are becoming grimier and dirtier filmmakers you know he's alongside coppola he's alongside very early spielberg who is also somewhat preoccupied with the darker aspects of humanity and certainly is not yet the cuddly spielberg that we will get right. for many many years thereafter there is a reactionary quality to cinema at that point and i think we can see that in scorsese's early work but for me the understanding the, the, the revelation that unlocked certain aspects of his filmmaking and certain aspects of his narratological approach is that he is fundamentally very sentimental. Mm. He is a very sentimental filmmaker. I think we see that as clearly in The Color of Money as in any of his other films. No, that's interesting. Can he you wants, walk me through that? It, it's his closeness, right? It's his intimacy. He wants to be very close to the subjects of his films mm -hmm. because he innately believes that they are worth our time, our attention, our study, our compassion, our empathy. And he goes a long way to communicate that through his very excellent technical filmmaking craft. Yeah. But if you are not open to an emotional and an empathetic connection with that character, yeah. and you needn't be, right? There's no law that says <laughs> you have to be open to these connections. Then the filmmaking is not going to reach you. It's going to leave you cold. You kind of have to come in with a certain buy-in, which I think is maybe why the films of his that work best for me are the films that are already in a milieu that I care about, whether that is The Color of Money or it's The Aviator, right? I love The Aviator. The Aviator is not vastly different from any other Scorsese film. Mm. But I really like that one because I like the underlying story. I like the performances. I like the era. I like the setting. It's sure. not just mafia dudes in New York. Yeah, yeah. Which is a whole subgenre of filmmaking unto itself, largely inspired and caused by Scorsese. <laughs> and I, I just can't find it in my heart to care. Yeah. I just can't. Yeah. So whether we're doing the very twisted anti-hero, right, like his Robert De Niro films. Right. Or we're doing his Goodfellas, we're doing Casino, we're doing something that's a little bit more stylish, that's a little bit more glamorous, but yeah. also and, and edgy. And has some more fun. Sure. Wolf of Wall Street was that way, was more fun. Exactly. Yeah. I also think that there really is something to Scorsese's filmmaking that is ephemeral. I think that yes. there is something to Scorsese's filmmaking that vanishes on the palette 
even as it is being enjoyed. Yeah, something dreamlike, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You recently watched Wolf of Wall Street. Yes. How did you find that? I had fun watching it. I mm -hmm. really did. I have no desire to go back and watch it again. I, I, it did feel still misogynistic to me. Like, I don't understand how a person could watch it and not feel that way. And I always feel that the female characters are just completely there to serve the male characters. Like, yeah. You, you, yeah. I love your, your joke. Carmen doesn't need a last name. Yep. And it's true. <laughs> and my understanding is that Killers of the Flower Moon tries to get away from that. But even even that, you know, was because people pushed and pushed and yeah. pushed and said, you're following the wrong character. <laughs> I'd like to dive into that just a little bit more mm. carefully. Do you think that, because obviously Wolf of Wall Street is depicting a very misogynistic era. It's depicting yeah. misogynistic characters. Mm -hmm. Do you think that the film itself is misogynistically dismissive of the female characters? Is it representing that viewpoint? Does it just not care? It's certainly not doing the work to balance or address that oppression of women. Right. I think the interesting thing ab about the women in these films is that they all have their own pretty clear storyline and backstory, but that the film just doesn't seem to care about that. Yeah. Like it's given to us, which always feels like I feel a little bit taunted by that almost like uh, Mary Elizabeth Mastantonio playing Carmen in this film gets this incredible rich backstory in her own very well-drawn character. And then literally vanishes from the last Absolutely. scene of the film. It physically disappears. Matter yeah. in the end, and that just really bothers me. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, no, it bothers me. Like I mean, it's better than not giving her any character whatsoever. But it, I don't know. It's almost worse too, because the potential is there and then gets squandered. Yeah, it's the application of solid craft in the service of something that ultimately the filmmaker does not care about. Right. And I don't think that Scorsese would claim to be a storyteller for women or right. even about sure. women. He's, yeah. he's very clear that he, he likes writing about man, likes making movies with Bob De Niro, does not like the Marvel Universe at all. Those yeah. are like the big Scorsese <laughs> high points that you yeah. want to encapsulate there. And I think that there is or should be space for that kind of filmmaking. I think it's perfectly okay for people to make films about whatever subject they want. But the association of Scorsese, a man who only makes films for man and about man. Being some kind of great American being filmmaker. part of the firmament. Yes, yeah. exactly. And, and an unassailable authority. Absolutely. Well. Yes. It's a complicated space. But filmmaker aside, I am interested in the background of this film because it did give me so many questions. So I can't wait to hear you tell me everything that you dug up Good. about how this relates to The Hustler and just help me find those pieces I feel like I'm missing to get the whole. I'm glad you're interested in the background because this film has double the amount of background that we normally have. So <laughs> we're going to move through it quite quickly because, well, we just have to. Mm -hmm. The road to The Color of Money is, is a very long one, obviously, as we've implied. It starts 25 years earlier. It starts in 1959 with the publication of Walter Tevis's novel, The Hustler. It's a pulpy, sharp-edged novel about fast Eddie Felsen, a small-scale pool hustler who loses big when he goes after the infamous pool shark, Minnesota Fats. Though, through the action of the plot, it's revealed to Eddie that the secret to winning was inside of him all along. <laughs> it sure. is, for a movie called The Hustler, for a novel originally called The Hustler and then a movie adaptation called The Hustler, it's not really about hustles. In exactly the same way as The Color of Money, it's not really about hustles. It's not really about con tricks. It's really about sentimentality. It's really about these characters coming to a place of peace and resolution with themselves, of identifying who they really are okay. and then acting in accordance with that. 
eventually Fast Eddie goes up against Minnesota Fats again at the end of the book and wins because now he has that purity of spirit. Now he has that purity sure. of intent, kind of what Newman's giving us at the end of The Color of Money too. Arguably, okay. I see the look okay. on your face. We'll no, get there. All right. We'll get there. All right. <laughs> but he ends up in a confrontation with his backer, with his stake horse. He refuses to give his backer money, and his backer tells him that you will never play pool in this town again or any other town because apparently all pool players know each other. Yeah. They that have, like, I don't does know, some seem to be... secret CB network yes. or something. <laughs> yes, a part of this mythos for sure. Rex Lardner at the New York Times described Tevis's book as, quote, a tense, jolting trip to the tough, dusty, smoky, ball-clackety, money-filled world of the pool shark, which is pretty great okay. writing, honestly. that is pretty great. Ball-clackety. Ball-clackety. Like <laughs> the novel is an immediate success. Several big Hollywood players express interest in optioning it for development, including perhaps most notably and most readily Frank Sinatra was going to oh, of course. option the book and obviously star as Fast Eddie himself. But it's Robert Rawson, a screenwriter, producer, and director who was still in 1959-1960, still recovering from being blacklisted following testimony to the House Un-American Activities Committee in 1947. He is still recovering from that, trying to make his name again. He options the book and begins developing the script alongside writer Sidney Carroll. That's Tevis's first novel. Tevis's second novel, by the way, is The Man Who Fell to Earth that would later be adapted into the David Bowie movie. Oh, wow. And okay. I guess also a miniseries that came out last year starring uh, Bill Nye and Kate Mulgrew and Naomi Harris, who is Daniel Craig's Money Penny. Oh, yeah. And Chiwetel Ejiofor in the lead. Wow. So we should probably check that out. I guess point. so. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> After selling the rights to the movie, Tevis moves his family from Kentucky to Mexico, where, according to his own personal account, he gets drunk and stays drunk for eight months. Whoa. We'll circle back around to him 25 years later. Bobby Darren was in contention for sure. the lead role, which makes a lot of sense. But Mac the, the Knife. Yeah, exactly. big Mac the Knife energy. But the producers finally persuaded Paul Newman to take the role. He did not want it, but was persuaded to take huh. it alongside Piper Laurie, Jackie Gleason, and George C. Scott. That film shoots in New York City beginning March 6, 1961, after three weeks of very intense rehearsals, including teaching Paul Newman how to play pool. The budget was set at $1.5 million, and Newman agreed to take a smaller salary in exchange for a percentage on the back end. He wound up making a lot of money off of that film. The film was a commercial and critical success and was nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actor twice for both George C. Scott and Jackie Gleason. Wow. And Best Adapted Screenplay. But in the end... It only won Best Art Direction and Best Cinematography, in large part, because that was the year of West Side Story. Oh, and West Side Story course. ran Swept. the table. Yeah. The only reason that The Hustler wins Art Direction and Cinematography is that at the time, the Academy was still dividing the categories between black and white photography and color photography. Oh, wow. That's yeah. wild. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you watched a little bit of The Hustler over my shoulder, as mm -hmm. it were. What did you think of it? I mean, Paul Newman is undeniable. He's got something, whatever that star quality is. He definitely has it. That uh, is a phrase that we have said to each other several times over the last few days. Yeah. Paul Newman is undeniable. He is. He really is. Yeah. And I haven't seen very many Newman films. T to me, growing up, Newman was the ranch dressing guy. Sure. So yeah. that was my, my grandma was like all natural before all natural was cool and organics <laughs> before you could find them anywhere that was in a health food store. So I remember that. And uh, she had on VHS... Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which sure. is also him, right? Yep, absolutely, Redford? him and yeah. Redford, yeah. 
but I somehow never watched that. So I don't have a lot of Newman in my bones, but I you sure saw him this week. Like, would really like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I think oh, yeah? he would like both of the movies that he does with Robert Redford, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and The Sting. I think he would really like. Yeah, I have Sting, seen both of those because one. I am a big Robert Redford fan. Sure. Okay. <laughs> Mostly because of uh, Sneakers, of course, which was yes. very influential in my early I life. I do love Sneakers. I should note that Newman is nominated for the second time for the Academy Award for Best Actor for The Hustler. He will be nominated four more times before he eventually wins. Wow. He was always the bridesmaid. <laughs> so let's talk about Newman. Obviously, yes, one of the movie stars of the 20th century. He's born in Shaker Heights, Ohio in 1925. He falls in love early in his life. He is professionally acting on stage by the age of 10, where he performs at the Cleveland Playhouse in a production of St. George and the Dragon. <laughs> he graduates high school in 1943. He serves as a communications officer in the Navy during the war. Afterward, he graduates with degrees in drama and economics from Kenyon College in Ohio. He's part of the Belfry Players in Wisconsin and the Woodstock Players in Illinois. Then he goes to Yale to study drama. Wow. But he's only at Yale for a year before he moves to New York City and starts studying at the Actors Studio with Lee Strasberg. It's 1951. Newman is married to his first wife, Jackie Witt, and he is about to start making a name for himself. He makes a huge impression first on the stage as a part of the original cast for The Desperate Hours and Sweet Bird of Youth, but he moves quickly into TV. In 1954, he's a last-minute replacement for James Dean in a live TV version of Our Town alongside Frank Sinatra. Wow. I don't think that any recording of that performance exists. At least yeah. I couldn't find one, but wow, I would love to see that. <laughs> He's basically shadowing James Dean through the first few years mm. of his career. He moves out to Hollywood later that year. He hits his first real exposure, starring as Rocky Graziano in Somebody Up There Likes Me, a role that had also originally been given to James Dean. Mm. In 1958, he appears alongside Elizabeth Taylor in Cat in the Hot Tin Roof and is yeah. immediately a star. The film is a huge success. Newman, then 33, gets his first Academy Award nomination. That year, he divorces his first wife and marries actress Joanne Woodward, to whom he would remain married for the rest of his life. Oh, wow. From that point, his career is, it's the stuff of legend. It's, it's the envy of anyone in Hollywood. 1967, he stars in Cool Hand Luke. 69, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which was written by William Goldman. I don't know if you knew oh, that little detail. no, I didn't know yeah. that. That's great. Wow. <laughs> that same year, he joins forces with Barbara Streisand and Sidney Poitier to create First Artists, a production company intended to give actors more say in their future projects. Every, That's cool. you know, 30 to 40 years, someone tries that same thing over again. Mm -hmm. One of these days, it's really going to work. <laughs> 1969 is also the year in which Newman discovers the other great love of his life. While training for the movie Winning, about a driver competing in the Indianapolis 500, Newman discovers a passion for motorsport. He races professionally through the 70s, through the 80s, even competing in and finishing second in the Le Mans 24-hour race. In 1979. That's very cool. Very, he's a very cool That's man. That's cool. Is the thing. Yeah. All right. In 73, he reunites with Redford for The Sting, which is the highest grossing film of the year. The following year, he works with Steve McQueen on the disaster movie classic The Towering Inferno. In 77, he appears in the hockey comedy Slapshot, which was a critical failure at the time and the subject of quite a lot of controversy at the time, but has since become a cult classic. In 1982, he works with Sidney Lumet and stars in The Verdict, earning his sixth unfulfilled Best Actor wow. nomination. Uh -huh. That is also the year where he begins Newman's Own, a food company which donates 100% of its profits to charitable programs designed to help children. 
in 2018, the company announced that they had passed the charitable donation mark of $500 million. Wow, that's very cool. I like you, Paul Newman. So around this time, the early 80s, Walter Tevis, the author of The Hustler, he's putting the finishing touches to what would turn out to be his fifth and penultimate novel, The Queen's Gambit, which oh. was later adapted into that Netflix series with Anya Taylor-Joy. That's <laughs> also a Walter Tevis novel. Is also a very well-written piece of work for oh. what it's worth. Struggling as he always had with his health, Tevis decides to revisit The Hustler and write a novel picking up with Fast Eddie Felsen 25 years later. The book is published early in 84. It's an immediate hit, being generally recognized as superior to the first book. Producers were already interested in optioning the book prior to its publication because of the reputation of The Hustler, yeah. of course. The option is bought by Paul Newman's lawyer, Irving Axelrod, at the end of 1983 for a quarter of a million dollars, courtesy of 20th Century Fox. Wow. In August of 1984, Walter Tevis finally succumbs to lung cancer. He never gets to see the adaptation mm. of his final novel. More than a year later, production gets underway. In October 85, Newman signs Martin Scorsese to direct. We'll circle back to Scorsese in just a minute. Weeks later, though, there's a change in management at Fox, and the project is dropped. Columbia then picks it up, only to immediately put it into turnaround. Things are looking grim, so Newman goes himself to the offices of Disney and persuades them to pick up this film. Wow. Part of that deal is the casting of the young megastar, Tom Cruise. Sure. This does not feel like a Disney film, I've got to say. I well, think Disney has changed the way that they sign on to things lately. It's not completely a Disney film because it is, of course, released under Touchstone, which is Disney's oh, brand right. for originally PG movies. They were anything that wasn't completely family friendly. Right. They had only launched Touchstone in 1984. The first movie out of Touchstone was Splash, the Tom Hanks, oh, Daryl yeah. Hannah comedy. Okay. Which is a great film for which I have, well, it's a fine film for which I have a lot of affection. Yes, fair <laughs> enough. It's particularly touching that Disney insists on Cruise for this film because Cruise has said through his entire career that Paul Newman is the kind of movie star that he wants to be. Paul Newman is Cruise's favorite actor. He's been clear about that in multiple interviews. Cool. The year before The Color of Money comes out, apparently convinced that they had missed the boat, they had missed their moment vis-a-vis -vis Paul Newman, the Academy gives him an honorary award. Quote, oh. in recognition of his many and memorable, compelling screen performances and for his personal integrity and dedication to his craft. Mm. The award was presented by Sally Field, and it was thought to be an appropriate way of honoring the career of a man who, now at the age of 60, was probably past his prime. And also because the Academy feels embarrassed and uncomfortable when they haven't given an award to someone who obviously deserves who obviously an award. obviously deserves one. Yeah, sure. So let's leave Paul Newman there on the brink of the color of money mm -hmm. and switch over to talking about Martin Charles Scorsese, born in 1942 in, um, oh, let me check my notes. Oh, born in New York City. I didn't know that. <laughs> it is basically Now who's being snarky about Scorsese? <laughs> It is basically impossible to encapsulate the career of Scorsese. I think to, to even try and gloss the career is all but yeah. impossible, particularly in the prefatory remarks here in a Tom Cruise podcast. <laughs> so we'll just give the briefest of brief glosses. Uh, he is raised in a Catholic family in Little Italy in Manhattan. And because he suffers from asthma as a child, he just watches a lot of movies. He graduates high school in 1960. He enrolls in a seminary to become a priest which is an interesting connection back to Cruz, who was also planning on becoming a monk during his oh, time yeah. in Catholic school, back when he was 16. That will also 
weirdly factor into a story about Cruz that we'll get to in a couple of episodes of time Ooh. as well. Scorsese leaves the seminary after a year, however, and enrolls in NYU, where he earns a BA in English and an MA in 1968. During his studies, he begins directing his own short films. He also learns that he's a very bad camera operator. His first professional role <laughs> is being a camera up on someone else's shoot. And because he cannot judge distance to save his life, he cannot get the camera in focus or keep it in focus. <laughs> I find that quite endearing. That is a bit endearing, yeah. yes. In 67, the year before he graduates, he makes his first feature-length film with just a couple kids in his class. Thelma Schoonmaker, who would edit 24 of Scorsese's films, yeah. including The Color of Money and Killers of the Flower Moon. She's with him through his entire career yeah. and is generally recognized as one of the best editors She's in the business. Just yeah. an absolutely extraordinary yeah. presence. The editing in this film, I will say, was top-notch, just stellar. I have almost nothing bad to say about the technical craft of this film. Yeah. I think it is breathtaking in many many aspects there's mm -hmm. a couple things that, that that rub a little for me there's a few spots of friction sure but generally astonishing technical work yeah that first feature also stars actor harvey keitel who would appear in six scorsese films through the years scorsese works as an ad while making friends and connections with the uh, the new hollywood movie brats as they termed themselves of the 70s you know de palma and coppola and spielberg and a promising young visual storyteller named George Lucas. Mm -hmm. Scorsese works with John Cassavetes, and then he falls in with Roger Corman, uh, the pioneer of low-budget popular cinema and a direct mentor to Scorsese, to Coppola, to Jonathan Demme, to Joe Dante, to James Cameron, and basically everyone who represents American popular right. cinema in the 80s and 90s. Do you notice anything specific about these names? That they're all men? All men. Yeah. I feel like I have to say about Thelma Shoemaker, too, that yeah. the reason that editing has so often been done by women is not a nod to any kind of like progressive feminism in Hollywood, but rather the idea that editing was women's work yeah. because of the way that it is similar, they thought, to sewing. Exactly. Because of the way you cut the film, stitch the film back together. They set up the original editing rooms in Hollywood back in silent film days full of women as though they were at sewing machines. Yeah. Well, and we have no problem, even in the most misogynistic periods of Hollywood's history, using women for craft as opposed to art. Art, yeah. Obviously, a woman cannot conceive of a shot, Ugh. but women can work behind the scenes and make costumes. And yeah, you're right, edit films. Mm -hmm. Marsha Lucas, the same period, famously saved Star Wars because she was a much better editor than George was. Wow. I didn't know that. No, the reason that you didn't know that is that one of the reasons that he went back in to re-edit the special editions Don't. is to take her name off of them. What a After their divorce. Head. Yeah. Ew. It was a pretty shameful part of his history. Yeah. Okay. Scorsese releases Mean Streets in 1973, starring Harvey Keitel, starring Robert De Niro, who will, of course, work with Scorsese again and again and again. It makes $3 million off of a budget of 650000 and that's it. He's arrived. His career has begun. We get Taxi Driver in 67. We get Raging Bull in 80. We get King of Comedy in 82. He's already an Oscar-nominated filmmaker by the time he even gets to The Color of Money. He's been nominated for the Academy Award for Best Director nine times, though he's only won once. Do you know the film for which Martin Scorsese has won the Academy Award for Best Director? No. The Departed. The Departed, of course. <laughs> I haven't seen that one. Yeah. He's also directed nine films nominated for Best Picture, including Taxi Driver. Do you like Taxi Driver? As a story, no. As a film, it's hard not to be impressed by what sure. Scorsese is doing. I think you can make an argument that following Scorsese through the 70s into the early 80s, even up to a certain point, including The Color of Money, which is 
a fairly pedestrian example of his work and is in some ways like the least Scorsese film that Scorsese ever directs. Mm. I think you can make an argument that through the 70s into the 80s, he contributes a great deal to our modern sense of what a film is supposed to look like. Yeah, He invents shots and conventions and tropes as readily as anyone else was working through that period, through that new Hollywood period. So mm. again, incredibly influential in many, many positive ways that are distinct from his instincts as a storyteller. Yeah, I think it's hard to think of a technical filmmaker who is more important than Scorsese, like maybe Spielberg. Spielberg is the only guy, I think, in that period who is just as adept at knowing where to put the camera, knowing how to light this, knowing how yeah. to shoot it, knowing how to just draw forth that film out of nothing yeah. and give it a real visual identity on screen. I think it's, yeah, incredible through that period. Okay, fair enough. But as I noted, Scorsese was not terribly enthusiastic about The Color of Money. He wasn't particularly a fan of The Hustler. It is Newman who gets him on board when the film is still in development at Fox. The other missing piece of the puzzle here is Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio. She was born in 1958 in Lombard, Illinois. That makes her four years older than Cruz, which she definitely plays to the hilt in this film. She attends the University of Illinois and breaks basically straight out of college. She's an uncredited extra in Scorsese's King of Comedy, but her first real performance is De Palma's Scarface, where she plays the sister mm. of Al Pacino's Tony. The Color of Money, though, is her star-making performance. She goes on to be James Cameron's muse right. for The Abyss in 1989. She appears alongside Kevin Kline in The January Man that same year. She marries the director of The January Man, Irishman Pat O'Connor. They are still together. Oh, that's lovely. <laughs> Master Antonio is also, I mean famously beautiful and and formative for 12-year-old me in Kevin Reynolds' 1991 blockbuster, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Oh, of course. What a crush I'm sure you must have had. Such a crush. I <laughs> still have such a crush on Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio. Yeah. I think she is so beautiful, so terrific. Never really had the career that I think might have been expected. Kind of had some bad experiences, most mm -hmm. notably working with Cameron on The Abyss. Right. But is incredibly successful and Harris, on specifically, stage. I think, as well as Cameron, uh, yeah, right? The, yeah, the combination Harris, of those two men. Yeah. yeah. Which was a notoriously difficult shoot yes. and, and taxing for all involved, of course. Yes. But yeah. Can you tell us the great story about the crew t shirts? I love this story. Oh, the story. <laughs> the crew for The Abyss had t shirts that said, Life's Abyss and then you die. <laughs> Which you just kind of have to love. Yeah, I did discover while researching for this podcast, because we have a running thing about director's editions and alternate cuts and yeah, all of that stuff. Yeah. Did you know that there's an alternate cut of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves that was released in 2003? No. Which raises the running time from, from 143 minutes, like a slight and paltry number, 143 uh -huh. minutes, barely a film, to a positively girthy 155 minutes. <laughs> Probably need an excuse to watch that. They also remastered it for Blu-ray, so oh, I haven't seen that film should. since. That'd released in 1991, I haven't seen that film since probably 1994. So. Oh my gosh! Wow, <laughs> it's been a long okay. time. Yeah, maybe that can be the uh, Patreon bonus episode that oh, we can put sure. up for vote from our patrons. <laughs> I love that we give something to Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio rather than to Scorsese or Tom Cruise <laughs> or to Paul Newman or Paul Newman, even <laughs> frankly. <laughs> We should also probably mention Forrest Whitaker, who shows up in this oh, film for yeah. a banger of a scene right Luminous. when it needs it most. Mm -hmm. uh, this is Whitaker's fourth on-screen appearance. He won't really break until later in 1986 when he stars in Oliver Stone's Platoon. He's just such a fascinating, constantly surprising, magnetic figure when he's on screen. And it's so wild to see that be so true, even at this early yeah. stage in his career. I 
love Forrest Whitaker. He's terrific. It's true. The movie shoots in Chicago, and as you might expect from Scorsese, everything goes smoothly. Principal photography lasts from January 21st, 1986 to March 31st. They finish ahead of schedule and half a million dollars under budget. Wow. Which never happens, but absolutely speaks to the professionalism of everyone involved. Yes, yes. Well, and also, I mean, the fact that they didn't shoot in Hollywood or New York, which people so often do. And I'm really glad that this one is in and around Chicago, because as someone who lived in that part of the world, it just rings so true. That first uh, bar that they went to, which ended up like being empty upstairs, whatever. But you get the main street and it says Lincoln's Tap Room was every single small small town in Wisconsin, like every one of them had Which, that kind of of pub. Yeah. Lincoln's is apparently a real bar. Like oh, I'm sure. The idea of going upstairs and it's not a pool hall, it's a furniture store. Yeah. That is the, that is the part that is not true. <laughs> the facade <laughs> is completely authentic. That, it, and it looks it. It really does. I think that authenticity, you cannot get that on a Hollywood back lot with flocked snow. You Absolutely just can't. True, yeah. Oh, no. The coldness the of the snow. The coldness of it. For yeah, those of you who may be listening at any point in the future, here in Oklahoma, it has just got cold this last week. Yeah. We're just dealing with our first frost of the year this morning. So <laughs> watching the color of and seeing, yeah, all that slush by the side of the road oh, felt freezing. Yes. The movie is originally slated for Christmas 1986, but Disney is so sure of its potential that it moves the movie up two months, opening eventually on October 17th, 1986, alongside the fourth week of Crocodile Dundee, the second week of Whoa. Jumpin' Jack Flash, and okay. Peggy Sue Got Married. Oh, I do like Peggy Sue Got Married. I love Jumpin' Jack Flash. And <laughs> the 23rd week of Top Gun. Wow. Famously, all of the pool shots in the film are performed by the actual actors except one. Newman and Cruz were both coached by technical advisor Michael Siegel, and they played constantly. They would play between takes. They would play after the shooting was wrapped for the day. They were very skilled. Newman, of course, already very skilled from shooting The Hustler in 62. The only shot that Cruz couldn't do is the chip shot, is the jumping the cue ball yes. over the two other balls. We get that one shot at the end. That was performed by Siegel. Scorsese said Cruz could have got it, but they couldn't afford two extra days to train him Yeah, so that he there. could finally make it happen. The Color of Money is a huge hit. Newman and Master Antonio are both nominated for Academy Awards, as well as Richard Price for the screenplay and the production team for art direction. It grosses $52 million off of a budget of $15 million. It would have been a landmark success for Cruz if it hadn't already been overshadowed by the phenomenal success of Top Gun. This would have made him a star if he hadn't already, you know, been a star. Mm. Over time, though... The reaction to the movie is kind of weird. It kind of sours, never into outright condemnation, but into a kind of middling shrug of a response. That is very much how I feel about it, a middling shrug. Roger Ebert wrote, quote, If this movie had been directed by someone else, I might have thought differently about it because I might not have expected so much. But The Color of Money is directed by Martin Scorsese, the most exciting American director now working, and it is not an exciting film. It doesn't have the electricity, the wound-up tension of his best work. And as a result, I was too aware of the story marching by. Hmm. I'm not sure I can completely side with Ebert yeah. there because it was feels there a as story? <laughs> there's little little story and little marching to Very be done. Very little marching. Yeah. Particularly Trudging, in the back perhaps. half. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Paul Newman would work consistently for 20 years after The Color of Money and would even be nominated twice more by the Academy. Best Actor for 1995's Nobody's Fool and in 2003 as a supporting actor in Road to Perdition. His last role, famously, is as Doc Hudson in Pixar's Cars. And it is 
Too bad that that is a bittersweet punchline because that is a phenomenal performance in an entirely huh. middling film. But the, the performance that he gives as the wise old mentor, basically a recapitulation of The Color of Money. Yeah. He is so terrific in that film and brings a dimensionality to that film that Pixar struggles to recover for yeah. years and years I afterwards. never would have guessed. Okay. It's really strong. Okay, cool. After Newman's death, Cruz wrote, quote, The first time I met Paul Newman was 25 years ago, when I went into audition for Harry and Son, a movie he was directing. I remember Joanne Woodward was there, and I will never forget this. She was knitting during the meeting, but she had her eye on every single thing happening in the room. They were a true team. I didn't get that part, but Newman remembered me, and two years later, I had the honor of acting opposite him in The Color of Money. Because he was so respected, so famous, so beloved, he was bigger than life to me. But he always had a way of putting us all at ease. For all his accomplishments, he was incredibly down-to-earth and real. He had a great sense of humor about life and himself. One last minor biographical note, which will relate to the story that I mentioned earlier about Cruz wanting to become a monk. Cruz meets Mimi Rogers for the first time shortly before the production of The Color of Money. By the time we come back in 1988's Cocktail, the two will be married. This is significant because Rogers is second-generation Scientologist. Mm. And this is where that connection is, is first formed, which means that the time is probably right for me to finally deliver on that ill-advised promise to record a podcast, record a lecture or yes. something, talking about L. Ron Hubbard, talking yeah. about Dianetics, talking about Scientology. If you guys at home would like to hear that, then get in touch and let me know. And I will <laughs> bump it up my very long to-do list. That's all of the preamble. Does that give you a perspective on what this movie is what it was trying to be? Yeah, yeah, a little bit more. I This is one of the things I was wondering about Scorsese. He doesn't typically write his own stories or scripts, nope. right? He doesn't write often, but he mm -hmm. does have a handful of credits through his career, including uh, an adaptation credit, a screenplay credit for uh, The Age of Innocence. Okay. Earlier, yeah. Okay, all right. Yeah, so, so he does seem to do a lot of adaptation then, I suppose, which I respect. I guess what I'm saying is that I can't imagine... Martin Scorsese just sitting and writing a story from scratch, what that might be. Yeah, he doesn't write between Mean Streets in 1973 and Goodfellas in 1990. So the whole of his 80s okay, is all just directing. Just, okay, yeah. okay. Which cool. in many ways, I think, yes, his most influential work. Sure, yeah. yeah. And I do think that the, the, the direction is solid. As you said, it is, a, it is technically really quite masterful. Yeah. And uh, specifically locations, set dressing, wardrobe, all of those things, I yeah. think just felt very... Very real and uh, yeah, gritty, like you said before, with, with, with Taxi Driver, yeah. definitely. What do you think of the camera movement that we get in this film? Does it feel outdated to you? Does it feel anachronistic? Yeah, We're doing some actual zooms in this know, film, which we just know, don't do which anymore. Which is weird. And I was thinking before, I was like, is this like a rack focus thing? But it didn't appear to be a rack focus, like the, the, the famous Jaws sure, rack focus. Sure, no. But yeah, just a zoom, which is yeah. weird, <laughs> but I'm okay with. Um, sometimes I think it's frustrating when there are like trends in filmmaking and in cinematography, especially, which just means that, you know, suddenly everything is lens flares, but no one can zoom anymore. Yeah. So I don't mind seeing something that's just different, even if it feels n anachronistic now. Right. Th that's a good point. That There's nothing technically wrong with a zoom. That's a thing that a camera can do. It's right. a thing you can make a camera do. The only reason that we don't do it now is that it feels like films from the 1970s. Exactly. It just feels outdated now. Yeah. It is interesting to me, as much as we talk about this not being a particularly you know, signature piece of Scorsese filmmaking, mm -hmm. it doesn't 
either feel like the hustler at all there's, there's oh, almost sure. no replication of the hustler no which the is little bit of hustler gorgeously shot film yeah the little bit of the hustler that i saw looked more citizen caney like very much more very stagey yes yeah. yeah staged and the camera was well back but everything was in focus one of the shots that stuck out to me but besides again all of the pool balls sequences which were just kind of fun even yeah. if they sometimes felt maybe a little bit on the silly side right this is scorsese, sometimes a little bit silly this right? is a scorsese fan of cinema kind of leaning into this is what a montage can be this yeah. is what a montage is for it's kind of it's, it's almost classical in that sense it, mm. it's film school is coming <laughs> through those elements right well and as as a filmmaker too now you see like okay all of these different shots of the pool balls this is like one day's okay now we're getting coverage of the pool balls yeah, you know what exactly. i mean it's not in any of these places they just all have to be the green felt no maroon felt because all of our push-ins are going to be on the green felt you yeah know? So that's interesting. Though in general, the ability of this camera to simply observe, I think, is is admirable. It really makes a lot of the dialogue sequences work. You're so right that for all that we're willing to cut frantically, that we're willing to cut for effect, we're also willing to just let a scene play out Oh yeah, in a very objective kind of way. I love simply seeing two actors on screen talk to each other yeah. without cutting it to ribbons with shot counter shot over the shoulder reverse angle we don't have to do that when you've got actors of this caliber right yeah what what do you think in general of these performances are, are they working for you are they strong for you i think everybody's good i think tom cruise is probably my least favorite but that's maybe not his fault it's maybe that he's just doing something different from his usual tom cruise thing so i have trouble buying it that's part of the response to this film that i don't right? completely understand we mentioned in last week's episode about top gun roger ebert having this idea of the cruise picture and yeah. we were talking about how the color of money fits that rubric perfectly. It fits that rubric perfectly. We've got the mentor. We've got the craft. We've got the arena. We've got all of that stuff. What we don't have is crews being crews. Right. Yeah. This is a proper performance. I don't like Vincent like at all. That's I think the thing. He's a yeah. Bad kid. I don't like Vincent. So it's really hard he's, to say. I think that the performance is there. Yeah. It's just not what I expect. This is not yeah. the crew's ego, cocky, charming performance. It, mm -hmm. it breaks into that in certain moments. But generally, yes. I think this is... And I yeah, think those are my favorite piece moments. Of work. Like all of his weird, like bow staff tricks that he does with his yeah. pool cue. The first time I didn't like it, but the second time I thought it was really kind of fun and interesting, and yeah, much more cruisy, much more physical. I yeah. suppose it's crazy. He's a for, very physical actor. It, absolutely, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's strange in a film where we have both uh, Paul Newman criticizing Julian John Tartura for using cocaine. And then oh, he yeah. gets that monologue later about how back in his day it was all booze and now yeah, it's cocaine and methamphetamine. Booze is more human. Right? Yeah, that was interesting. Which is a great monologue. Mm -hmm. I thought. It's crazy that in a film that is preoccupied with the presence of cocaine in pool halls, there's no suggestion that Vincent is using cocaine no. despite the quality of that performance. Or really even alcohol most of the time either, right? Doesn't He's seem to generally be. pretty sober. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get into it then and okay. talk first about these titles. We had some questions over on the Discord about these titles. They're weird. You mean the absurd font and yes. the color choice? Yes. Why? I can't tell you why. Unfortunately, <laughs> I can tell you who, if that's okay. any help. These titles were designed by Dan Perry, who is a designer who has worked on, frankly, an incredible number of films, designing titles and credit sequences for, among other things, the opening crawl for Star Wars. Oh. That's this guy. Okay. The Exorcist, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Airplane, 
Nightmare on Elm Street, which is Nightmare on Elm Street was exactly what I was going to go yes. for, is that it really does remind me of that. He did Field of Dreams. He did Robert Altman's The Player, which has a fantastic so title sequence. Yeah. Kevin Smith's Small Rats, Gangs of New York, The Aviator. He has 274 credits for title design alone on IMDb. That is he so weird. He did a brief video, like a five-minute video for the Academy, talking about title design. It's available on YouTube. I will link it in the show notes. It's great. That's so interesting. Yeah. Because it feels so bad, inadvertent, right? It doesn't yes. feel like it has any kind of sensibility no. to it that's reflected in the rest of the film. If anything, it feels ironic, especially since it's the color of money and it comes up in hot red. And yeah. you're like, that's weird. It would, yeah, you're right. It does kind of feel like it's ironic. Except yeah. I don't know what we're ironically taking yeah. at that point. It doesn't work for me at all. I think it's a big swing and a miss. It is it at least a swing. doesn't make a strong impression for me either, I have to oh, say. Oh, I think it does make a strong impression, but the impression <laughs> is that it's bad. You're right. It doesn't make a good impression <laughs> for right. me either. And that is only compounded when we get close-up shots of a cigarette smoldering in a glass. Yeah. And Martin Scorsese himself giving us a voiceover about pool. That was him. That's Scorsese. I wondered whose voice that was and why. Yep. So New York. I have no idea why that is in the film. Yeah. None whatsoever. Weird. Yeah. I mean, I was grateful that it taught me the rules of nine ball, which I did not know, but. I don't know that I know the rules of nine ball now. You know, saying that halfway through the film, I did Google rules of nine ball so that I could definitely pay attention. So, but yeah. He even presents us with what is one of 20 lines that we might take to be a thesis statement for the film. Oh, sure. But for some players, luck itself is an art. Okay. Okay. It it has a, you know. Luck is an art. Sententious kind of quality to it it sure. sounds as though he's telling us something about this film but he's really not no no this film i is think not about luck no like if all. anything i think of the titanic line back to cameron the a real man makes his own luck that they give to billy zane <laughs> yeah it feels much more that 25 years after we last saw him there he is Fast Eddie Felsen is selling whiskey wholesale and flirting with the owner of the bar and funding a small-time hustler by the name of Julian, who happens to be playing pool with a kid called Vincent, who has a sledgehammer break and a very pretty girlfriend. (laughs) I want to say again, because I would like to say it four or five more times in the span of this podcast, Paul Newman is incredible. He is undeniable. This performance knocks off my socks. This is old school Hollywood acting and it is brilliant. I completely agree. I don't think he puts a foot wrong. I respect the script in this moment too because as someone who works behind a bar and who has the (laughs) (laughs) the brand ambassadors coming in all the time trying to sell you on something uh, it was just very well observed and I like that you hear the shout out to old granddad whiskey too which is a great like Behind the bar, everybody knows. Can't go wrong with old granddad. Yeah, it's cheap, but everybody likes it. It was it was nice. It's it was nicely nice. done. Yeah, mm-hmm. I love the the byplay between Eddie and Janelle here. I yeah. just think that their relationship. I wanted more is, of her in the film. She's terrific. Yes, I'm yeah. so glad when she came back because I assumed we had just forgotten about her. Yes, as we so often do. Right. Mm-hmm. I love too that she doesn't come back to any purpose exactly. She is a symbol of him reappraising his life and figuring out what it is that he wants of course so in that sense she's not being fully recognized or rewarded as a character right but i love that it's not plot that brings her back it's character yeah it's it's his transformation yeah Yeah. i like that she's very very good indeed yeah yeah it's funny at first i thought she was renee russo but i was like why does she look the same as she does in 98 that can't be right (laughs) so that's our introduction to Cruz as well all cocaine energy and very high hair 
This is very high hair. Very atypical cruise hair. So silly. This hairstyle is coming back. Have you noticed? I have. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not thrilled about it either, but it was amusing to me. Makes me grateful to be a bald man. He quite reminded me of a guy that I work with, as a matter of fact. So it was pretty funny. (laughs) How do we feel about the, you know, borderline appropriative qualities of Vincent here? He's obviously intended to be a young man of Italian origin, of Italian descent. In the name alone. Yeah. He doesn't, they don't seem to really lean on that to me outside no. from the original and the introduction. Accent, a little bit, yeah. The accent. He's does giving, he have? yeah, he's, it's still Cruz, so he, I was he never say, really does a he's voice. He's not an accent work kind of actor. <laughs> That's actually fair, too. It's more in the rhythm and in the mode of his delivery. His voice is clearly, I think, different in this film than it is in mm-hmm. other films when he's giving a more general Cruz performance. Yeah. There's more specificity here. It does feel more. I don't know, Queens, it's got a sure, quality Sure, sure. The to fashion it. is interesting. I cannot get over his earring. Can you? The earring is so terrible. It's so terrible and weird. And why is it just standing out so much? I've seen them with earrings so many times. Why is it so weird? I'll tell you what I genuinely love, though, huh? is his shirt. Oh, that says Vince? <laughs> his Vince shirt <laughs> yeah. is genuinely is great. Yeah. I don't know if they're available on Etsy. I, I might go that. and buy one. Yeah. <laughs> If you had one for behind the bar, that would be so cool. <laughs> Everyone loves anyone that just says babe. Yeah. I always get compliments. <laughs> Despite himself, Eddie cannot help but be fascinated by this precocious young player. Having taken Julian for everything he's got, Vincent offers to play with no stakes, which I love because that's the moment. That is a great moment. When Eddie realizes, oh, wait, it's not just that this kid's good. It's that this kid's doing something. And the acting that Paul Newman does just watching, they say acting is reacting. Yes. Chef kiss. So good. Not over the top either. Just invested. And this brilliant sequence that he gets with Carmen. Yes. As the two of them are like feeling each other out. Mm -hmm. And he's clearly dominant over her right he knows more he just has so much more experience he sees what they're doing she cannot see what he is doing at this point but she is also clearly intelligent and he respects that Mm -hmm. so there's a real interplay between the two and not only intelligent but clearly trying to learn in the moment on her feet and i think that really he respects that as well that counter offer of five hundred dollars do you know why you should take it yeah is so good and then to repeat it again right you Uh shouldn't take it you should take it it's really strong stuff. It's, yeah. it's a script with a very direct point of view. And we are going to lose that at about the say, midpoint of the story. I think that if you just watch this opening, what, 15 minutes or whatever it is, then you get the best of the film, like the best that it has to offer. Yeah, I think I think The Descent is honestly pretty linear. Yeah. At least until, well, no, because you still want to get Forrest Whitaker. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's Forrest a Whitaker's standout great. and a bad part of the film yeah. more than he is. You but know, that also uh, just comes uh, to he, nothing. So many things yeah. just come to nothing. Yeah. Ironically, that is very similar to The Hustler, which sets mm. out with all of this energy and all of this intensity and then just loses its way, loses Stumbles its narrative downhill. momentum. That's yeah. a shame. Eddie takes them to a diner telling Vincent that he has excellence, that he has his gimmicky... This is great, where he says, you you are a character. And he says, oh, you think I have character? And he's like, that's not what I said. Yeah. That was great. Yeah. That's good script, too. Eddie claims to be a master of what he calls human moves, which he then demonstrates by conning Vincent and Carmen out of the price of dinner by betting that he can leave with the woman at the bar in less than two minutes. Right. Which, of course, he does. He does not mention that he already knows the woman at the bar and offers her a ride home. Right. Which is pretty cute. (laughs) The next day, we get another great scene between Carmen and Eddie because she has figured out his move from the night before. Yeah. 
this was maybe my favorite part of the film. This right is, here. I think, a real high point. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. it just came to nothing, which is so disappointing. Her story about being the driver for her boyfriend who robs Vincent's mother's house. Uh huh. It's all so complex. It's all so crunchy. It's all so nuanced and contradictory. Mm-hmm. And you're absolutely right. It is setting up an expectation for the rest of the film that the film has no interest in delivering on. At all. Yeah. yeah. It really is. It's really kind of a slap in the face. It's really disappointing. If I was Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonia, I would be pretty pissed about it, honestly. Except I think that she comes out great from she it. She does. Yeah. And that... it's, a, it's a stellar performance, I yeah. should say, too. Yeah. She's really terrific. From there, we catch up with Vincent at his day job at Children's World, where Eddie tells him about this nine-ball tournament in Atlantic City in six weeks. Vincent needs to go on the road and figure out who he is so that they can then subsequently take the tournament for a lot of money. Eddie tells him that Carmen has one foot out the door, which is, of course, the right lever to pull. This this is, yes, you're right. We just had the best scene, which is Eddie and Carmen in the car Mm -hmm. talking about her past and, and kind of continuing to feel each other out. In some ways... Their ongoing negotiation of one another is my favorite subplot. Yeah, definitely. But much like the backstory that was introduced in the previous scene, it doesn't go anywhere. It's just resolved. Yeah. Yeah. For some reason, later on in the film, we decide that the character who is interesting is Vincent, and it's not. Vincent is only ever interesting as almost a plot device, as a MacGuffin. Right. But when they part ways with Eddie... We expect everything I know about film tells me that the film is going to follow the mentee and not the mentor. We're going to move yeah, with the new generation. Sure. We're going to stick with Vincent and Carmen and find out how they're doing. And instead, we just stay with Eddie. Yep. So that, in a sense, our most vital protagonists absent themselves from the story yeah. for, what, 20 minutes? Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. And that is when things just start to trudge. What do you think about the hustle aspects of this script the con man aspects of the script what do you think about eddie telling vincent that carmen has one foot at the door that she's bored that she's ready to go yeah i mean i think that those are in some senses the most fun that the movie ever has i like uh particularly when he starts to describe to them the two brothers in a stranger routine and Love as soon that, as he yeah. starts to describe it they cut hard to them doing it brilliant masterclass. thank you Thelma Schumacher. That's, that's some real Soderbergh Ocean's Eleven kind gorgeous of work. it <laughs> is it is yeah which I always love and I like like the Ocean's movies too like those kinds of heist films yeah. I find interesting and I find con man stories interesting you know think of uh, Sawyer and Lost I find sure, all that stuff fascinating sure. uh, but uh, I don't know I, I could have done with more of it I should say yeah. they, they, it felt shoe leathery to me when we used it well because the film isn't really about that no and isn't which really is fair. interested in it's that not. and is actually perhaps contrary to a lot of what we might expect from Scorsese later in his career, is kind of about removing ourselves from the game and the gimmick of being a con man and instead finding something that is true and deep and personal and passionate, which is that Eddie really loves playing pool. I was going to (laughs) say, but but did we? (laughs) Well, that is part of the ambiguity. You know, we'll, we'll talk about the weird ambiguity and extensive conspiracy theories that people have about this film when we get to its last movement. Okay. Because we have to first introduce the Balabushka Q, which is a gorgeous prop, a beautiful thing. These are real. They were handcrafted cues made by Russian emigre George Balabushka, who only made 1,200 cues in his career between 1959 and his death in 1975. We actually get that note later. That's a real Balabushka. I heard that guy died like 10 years ago. Uh Yes, in fact, he did. Four real Balabushka cues that come with all the proper documentation and are in good condition. Prices start at $1,000. Wow. Okay. I like that. That's one of those fun things that it's just something I had never considered, you know, expensive 
terrific pool cues, except that I know just as being a kid who had a pool table in the house for a little while, even though we didn't quite have room for it, that my dad was always so specific about not ever putting any weight on them so that you wouldn't bow them. Specifically when Tom Cruise is doing the whole thing where he's got like the the pool cue is behind him on his neck and he's got hands Classic, resting on it cool on either side. Stance. Yeah, except yeah. that that's really bad for the cue, yeah. right? My dad <laughs> told me that. Is it true? I'm not sure. Are you a pool player? We should talk about this. I, I Okay. I do enjoy playing pool. I'm not very good at it because of a technical reason that is frustrating to me, which is that I am right-handed, but I'm left-eye dominant. So I find shooting ah. pool and shooting rifles, which is not a thing that I would be interested in doing, but is a thing that I was taught to do sure. in my youth. I am just not good at it because there, there's just a disconnect between the way my hands want to... I, I shoot pool left-handed, yeah. and so I'm not very good at it. But if I try to do it right-handed, I can't set up the shot. That's too bad. It is yeah. too bad, yeah. What I can do is I can have somebody... And this is what uh, my dear friend who used to produce my podcast, Randy Mitchell, taught me because he had a pool table at his house growing up, was if somebody can just like point to me, this is where you need to hit the ball, then I can make that happen. But I can't do the math to set it up for some reason. Yeah. And I don't know if that's just like geometry and angles, yeah. but th then trying to get my hands to work in such a way. I don't know. It's just <laughs> tricky for me. What I've about you? always enjoyed playing pool and, you know, I'm tall and i have long arms i was gonna say that's nice height. yeah so i'm it five feels three, like an unfair so advantage definitely know. pool tables are so small though i grew up you know drinking early in bars back in scotland mm -hmm. playing snooker where the the tables are just much much larger oh that's sure closer to straight stick pool that yeah. they, i guess which we never see in this film but which no. we mentioned and was the game of choice back in the hustler yeah this idea of the advent of, of eight ball or nine ball pool that the kids like because it's faster. Sure, really Texas Hold'em. Yeah. Something, right? I thought of that too. Definitely. There's something really interesting about that commentary and it doesn't go in. <laughs> See also my previous complaints about this film. Yeah. It's really interesting. It doesn't go anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In any case, we're 33 minutes into the film and we are finally on the road. It's a pretty tight, pretty efficient first act. And yes, it's probably the high point of the whole piece. Eddie tells the kids his backstory, which is basically a recapitulation of what happened in The Hustler. The first pool hall they try has been turned into a furniture store, which is such a great reveal. Scorsese putting the camera that far back so that Newman is so small entering into that yeah. set and just holding it for a long time. Such an effective piece of visual storytelling, mm -hmm. there, I thought. Yeah, they do a lot of, of shots where one of the characters is in the foreground, but out of focus. Yeah. Uh, or, or vice versa. But you absolutely know who that person is, yeah. which I think is really interesting. It has a lot of uh, faith in the actors to deliver, and they do. Yeah, I particularly love that at the beginning of the next sequence when we finally have our first real pool game. We go into that hall. This is the sequence that ends with Paul Newman leaving Tom Cruise to get beat up. Yes. And coming in and slapping him in the face and uh -huh. claiming to be his dad, which is so good. <laughs> Ultimately, again, doesn't really go anywhere, but it's such a great sequence. That is but a great sequence. Near the beginning of that sequence, we have Newman in the foreground in focus, and Master Antonio comes in behind him. Yeah. Yes. It's very effective. Mm -hmm. These two pressures, the, the angel and the devil on Vincent's shoulders. Again, the film behaving as though Vincent is our protagonist, even though ultimately we're going to be more interested Absolutely in not. Eddie. Yeah. Yeah. The next sequence is the brief moment in the motel where we get the glimpse of Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio in the bathroom, in the shower. She is yeah. naked. And 
seems to know that she is being reflected in the mirror. Absolutely. In a now way she that is looking Eddie can see at her. Eddie and Eddie is looking well, at her. How do you read that? Do, do you read that as he will later accuse her of trying to flirt with him, of trying to manipulate him? Yes. That is a very ugly scene of confrontation, I think, when it we is. get to it. How do you think we are to understand that plot? Do you think that she is manipulating him? Yes. Okay. Yes. No, she, in her mind, has two cards to play. One is that she is smart and one is that she is hot. And those are the two cards that she plays over and over again. Yeah. And they're her only ones. I don't love, I think we could have done it without actually having to see her naked, though. That's the part that frustrates me that I feel like a male filmmaker is just like, oh, yeah. And then she's there and she's reflected and we see her naked body. And you don't need to. Yeah. Like if, if it's shoulders and up and Paul Newman's eyes widen, we get it. We don't need to put the actor in that position. There's another scene where she just walks into the pool hall and everybody turns to look at her because she's a beautiful white woman who's in this part of town that is predominantly black and male playing pool. And there is a sense of her wielding a certain kind of power just by walking in the room and being beautiful. And I find that really interesting. And I do think it speaks to her character and it speaks to what Paul Newman sees or forgive me, what Fast Eddie sees in what she can bring to to this triumvirate of theirs. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and telling her specifically, like, I'm the hard ass, but you've got to keep the sweet talk. You've got you've got to keep him comfortable. Is that what yes, he says? Yeah. Yeah. He, he recognizes that if they work together, that right. they can keep Vincent on the straight and narrow. And indeed, ultimately, they do. But... Her power is not like his power. <laughs> no, no. He even calls it out at one point. He doesn't say the word pussy, but that is what yeah. he is thinking and saying. And, and she was like, what are you talking about even? Like, what weapon do you mean or whatever? And he doesn't say it, but you see her understand it, I think. Well, and that's the interesting thing about Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio playing this role at the top of her intelligence, yes. right? She's really bringing herself and, not, and her complexity to yes. this role. So it's difficult for me to understand when we have those moments of what are you talking about? I don't understand. I'm not getting it. Is that true? She seems smarter than that. Yeah. I yeah, and I don't, I, I don't think it's specifically true. I think she's daring him to say it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because she knows. It's clear that she knows. And it's clear that she's using In that specific instance, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Y- using the, the the powers that she has. Uh I don't think that she is playing a feminine character, which I think is great too. She does not coddle Vincent at all. She protests whenever she is treated as the little woman, even though Vincent often tries to do that and she only gives into it when she does see that it's going to help their long game like yeah. when w- when Eddie walks her out to get a cab it's not because he doesn't think that she's safe there it's because he thinks that Vincent will play better if she's gone which is ultimately true and i think ultimately why she does go ahead and leave oh that's an interesting distinction that that, that Vincent will play better if she is gone versus Vincent will play worse if she is there uh, right? Yeah, kind of either way. Mm-hmm. Active both ways, perhaps. Yeah, I think there are moments in her performance when she puts up with Vincent, obviously is putting up with him. He is very physically expressive toward her in a way that is, from time to time, more like a younger brother. Yeah. Kind of needling her more than it is a grown-up person with whom you are in a relationship. Yeah, they don't have any kind of romantic chemistry, I don't think. They really don't, but even that is fascinating. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the angle that she gives in that scene in the car when she's it's talking true. about her like past. He's always kind of a mark, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, and and the idea that all of this is a hustle, yes, and that Carmen is behind it all, is is a common theory online. And it should be. That should be how the movie ends. <laughs> it's really frustrating that it's not. 
It's interesting that you mention the black characters in the next scene because the hustler, mm-hmm. an extremely white cast. There are, I believe, two black actors in the cast, mm-hmm. uh, one of whom is a janitor and the other is is equally minor. Right. I mm-hmm. think gives a towel to Jackie Gleason at one point. That's it. This character that we are about to meet, Orvis, who is played by the brilliant uh, Bill Cobbs. Great. Yeah. Who, uh, yeah you know, from, you know, that thing you do and and. Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and Demolition Man, and brilliantly, uh, PBS-friendly Canadian children's education show, Dino Dana, in which he plays the elderly neighbor. He's the sweet neighbor guy. That's cute. Yeah, Uh, He's terrific. He is supposed to be the same character, and indeed that is supposed to be the same pool hall from The Hustler. It's not. Neither neither of those things are true, but it is supposed to be, yes. Okay. So that idea that he came up from being the janitor at this place and now Mm -hmm. owns it and is a figure of authority and respect. That's a really nice arc, even if it's imperfectly landed in the reality of the film. And having these black actors in this scene certainly makes the scene feel more varied, more dynamic, more urgent, more modern. Mm. As you mentioned, this is where we have the fight between Carmen and Vincent, who wants her to leave because this place is dangerous. And she has that great line, I've dated people worse than this. Yes. Yeah. And then he feels the need to balance that at the end of the scene by saying, she hasn't dated people worse than this. Yeah. Is that him protecting her honor? Is that him deflecting a perceived slight that he is worse than this? My understanding is that she has lied to Vince from the time that she met him about who she is and what her motives are. Right? (laughs) That is a perfectly valid read of the text that never occurred to me. Oh, yeah. No, when she shows the locket to Fast Eddie and and says, Vincent tells me his mom has one just like it. Yeah. I thought that that is supposed to be Carmen and Vincent in on this together. Oh, We're no, never no, going to no. talk about it. We're never going to acknowledge it. Oh, it's no. Just, oh, my God. He thinks it's sweet. Wow. I think that's really interesting and certainly changes the balance of the relationship. This is, yeah, this is maybe the problem of, of Master Antonio playing at the top of her intelligence and Tom Cruise well, maybe also playing at the top of his, but never coming across as an intellectual. No. He's never, yeah. he, he's never going to read as smart on screen. He's going to read as savvy. He's going to read as savvy, fast, sure. mm-hmm. but not perhaps careful in that same way. That's a really interesting. interesting inflection on that scene. I think mm-hmm. it is possible to read it both ways. I like your way much better. <laughs> we do pivot at that point to just Eddie and Vincent playing pool against each other. And we have as a way of like garnering interest yes. from the locals. Yes. Mm-hmm. And this is Paul Newman's greatest opportunity to just rant about how the world is bad now. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so good. I could watch him do it for hours. I think it's just terrific. The facility that they both have with the game of pool. Yeah. You know, incidentally, in this dialogue scene, we're just casually going to be making amazing shots. We'll do two or three in a time for a single shot without a single edit. Yeah. It's gorgeous to That's behold. That's great. Yeah, yeah, it really is. This is the point, though, where we get the first iteration of Vincent being unable to keep his ego in check. He is supposed Mm -hmm. to lose. He is supposed to be humble. He cannot do it. Eddie leaves in disgust, goes back to the motel room. Yeah. And finds finds Carmen in a state of undress. Yeah. uh, Yeah. And here again, where she's definitely trying to get a rise out of him and definitely trying to wield power over him. And he responds really grossly by basically physically assaulting her to put her back in line. Absolutely physically assaulting her. Yeah. I really like what he says to her in this sequence. I really like the content of, I'm not your daddy. I'm not your boyfriend. We are business people. Yep. I do not like that he has to emphasize that 
with with what is a, a very frightening and and blunt absolutely. physical assault. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And especially after the, the little bit of the hustler that I saw, he definitely smacks Pepper Laurie in the face. Yeah, he does. Yeah. yeah. I don't like it. Vincent, meanwhile, is hustling the one guy he was told not to hustle, and he's using the balabushka. This scene, by the way, when he uh, has the case, he's asked what's inside the case. This is the inspiration for the title of John Carmack and John Romero's breakout industry-transforming 1993 video game, Doom. Uh-huh. Doom is called Doom the video game is called Doom the video game because of Tom Cruise saying Doom in this scene because these nerdy kids, Carmack and Romero, just thought that was the coolest moment in cinema history, <laughs> which is now kind of silly. Definitely. They are about to, by the way, this just crossed my newsfeed uh, earlier today. They are about to host a live stream on, I think, December the 10th, which is the 30th anniversary of Doom. Wow. Did you ever play Doom when you were a kid? A little bit, but not very much. Yeah. Yeah. Not I really watched kind my of, friend. Kind of <laughs> yeah. I, I had a, a guy friend who was two or three years older than me who I watched play it a lot, but yeah. I didn't play it very much. <laughs> I played Descent and Heretic. It always astonishes me that you played the much nerdier, yeah, much much more obscure and complex versions of this game. <laughs> your constant surprise and delight. Thanks, darling. <laughs> Eddie returns to the pool hall as Vincent is grandstanding, and this is technical accomplishment, the likes of which we see all too rarely. Really this great shot is a knockout. It is a fifty-second uninterrupted shot where the camera circles the table, mm -hmm. the whole pool table, four complete times, while Cruz sinks five balls in succession mm -hmm. without cutting away from it at all, while <laughs> lip-syncing to, performing to, Werewolves of London. Uh-huh. It's incredible. And doing the weird cue bow-staff tricks. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's great. phenomenal. Yeah. The mastery of this form. And I it mean, looks like he's having fun. It, it does. Doesn't yeah. look like he's trying. Even though there's got to be a little bit of sweat somewhere saying, get the take. This is the other thing is, you know, vis-a-vis -vis this being just another Cruise performance. This is just another mm -hmm. Cruise plays a cocky guy who's right about everything performance. Mm -hmm. This is not that. This is the moment when you would expect Vincent to kind of crack into, you know, being Maverick. To crack into sure. being Joel from, from Risky Business at the end of the film. But he doesn't. This is a completely different and unique kind of you know cocky asshole <laughs> do, do you agree with that do you yeah. think that's true no i think i do i think i do yeah he's not likable in this in a way that you usually kind of depend on tom cruise to be likable no absolutely which is smart for the purposes of the script because he is supposed to be you know goading these people he mm -hmm. is supposed to be and he is and he really this is this is where we get punchable tom cruise yeah absolutely for, yeah for my yeah. friend katie yes so Vincent wins and the wealthy Mark leaves the hall without playing, which is such a great scene as he yep. brushes past Newman on the way out. Vincent wins the battle, but loses the war. This is the midpoint sequence that we get. This is the reckoning between the two, although we're not really going to resolve anything. We're no. going to kind of do this again yes, and then again. And we're certainly going to have this conversation a couple more times. It doesn't work. This is the point at which the wheels kind of come off yeah. this script. And I, I mean that very literally as we just kind of like coast to a halt. There's almost no propulsive force in the second half of the film, which considering that we're talking about a tournament, right? Which is right. the kind of thing that you invoke to give artificial pace and structure to your film. Oh, we have to go to the competition and win the competition. There's nothing driving this story forward. If basically as of this minute, right? Yeah. It all falls apart really quickly. I think in part 
we lose some of that propulsive force simply because all of our immediate conflicts have been resolved. Yeah. Vincent's being good. He's being well-behaved. He's he's taking his losses when he needs to. Eddie's all fired up now. Carmen's Mm -hmm. playing nice with both of them and is using her feminine wiles to make sure this whole thing stays on track. So we just kind of go through the motions. We montage through some bars, through some pool halls. And nothing really happens. We get to see Vincent learning a little humility, but it's humility in the service of a greater victory. So it's not even yeah, really humility. Yeah, so it's not really even humility. Exactly. It's I not a character lesson. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> He's not being changed into a better person. No. Although apparently He's just delaying movie, gratification. Yeah. I'm not sure what we make of who and what Vincent has turned into by the end of this story. Maybe we'll catch up with that when we finally get Maybe. to Atlantic City. Yeah, I'm not convinced anybody really arcs here, but yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. Finally, they run into Grady Seasons, the excellently named Grady Seasons, a well-known player to whom Vincent must publicly lose in order to sink his standing, in order to undo the damage that he has accrued on the journey thus far and lengthen his odds when they get to Atlantic City. Right. Grady, however, taunts Vincent as they play. Vincent, unsurprisingly, cannot learn his lesson, so he starts showboating again. Yeah. Second verse, just like the first. Exactly. It really right? is. And and what's funny to me, too, is that this character, Grady, is taunting him in just the same way that he taunts people. So yeah. you would think that he would see it. And then I, I was ready for this to be a moment where he's like, oh, my God, is this the kind of asshole I sound like? And yeah, like, a little bit. And apologize to, to Eddie, but not at all. Instead, he just That's That's too much character it. growth yeah. for this no, point no, no, in the no, film, no. for Hook, sure. Hook, and sinker instead. There is... A really good specificity to some of the lines. We haven't really talked about the quality of the script. I think the script is excellent. And we have to credit, of yeah. course, the original book for a lot of that, too. A lot of this dialogue mm-hmm. comes from Walter Tevis's, like, hard-boiled, kind of rough-edged style, which sure. I really enjoy. Like, it's not high art. It's not great literature. But it's a rollicking good read, you know what <laughs> I mean? Sure. So a lot of those lines, I think, work really well. I always think of the guy that Eddie will eventually beat when they are in the tournament. Who just repeats the line twice. Yeah, uh, I didn't deserve this. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and the second time, Eddie says, yes, you did. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you good did. Writing. Yeah, it's good writing. It's good writing. And as we've said before, you know, you can hand Paul Newman a monologue and you will get magic out mm-hmm. of it. So the script, I think, is excellent and really deserved that nomination for adapted screenplay. Yeah. And I'll say, too, while we're talking about technical aspects of the film, we've kind of praised Scorsese's technical acumen moving through this film. Mm-hmm. But here, as Vincent is showboating with Grady and the plan is starting to dissolve, we do this weird overlay transparency effect with Paul yeah, Newman's face. Yeah, that's right. I do remember that. kind of weird anyway. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the shot, as as the camera is rather sickeningly moving while we're doing this transparency, right. which is just a weird effect and kind of made me feel, you know, yeah, unhappy in mm-hmm. my stomach. <laughs> we finally end up with a transparency of Paul Newman overlaying Paul Newman's face. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't need that disappointment yeah. in stereo. I really don't. It's a weird, <laughs> weird choice. It reminds me of nothing more than the end of Twin Peaks The Return when Kyle MacLachlan's disembodied head oh. is superimposed over, what, 10 minutes of that penultimate episode? <laughs> A crazy choice for Lynch, an insane choice for Scorsese. Right. Carmen intervenes, warning Vincent, as you might expect, that if he keeps winning, they won't be having sex anytime soon. Right. So Vincent throws the game just as he's supposed to. And I guess we're supposed to see here Carmen as the mediating influence. What do you think of her using? You mentioned earlier that she possesses both intelligence and good looks. Mm -hmm. What do you think of her using her feminine wiles in this somewhat hacky but also maybe ultimately believable way i mean this is the whole point of her character this is 
what she does, if not who she is, um, definitely a part of her manipulation that we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, I find it interesting, especially when, as I said, I thought that she was like more of the brains behind the operation than she turns out to end up being. When I really thought that she was pulling strings with both of them, it worked for me even more. Mm, um, no, as such, it's just it's a little bit sad. It's a little bit hacky, I think. But yeah. When you say that this is this is what she is, do you mm. mean conceptually? Do you think that Carmen, as we meet her in the first act, is only capable of this? Do we think that she is now like out of her depth, that she is out of her class, that she's out of the realm of her experience, and that this is the only thing that she can do? Or is this just a film that's uninterested in exploring what she is capable of? I think the latter. I, th- I think the film isn't interested. I think that we use her to serve the plot and the story and break her when we have to. We didn't finish talking about that uh, that last sequence because we wanted to get past, of course, the assault of it, which is terrible when they're there in the hotel room. But then remember, Eddie looks up and sees that the pool key was gone. Yeah. And she gets this, oh, I'm so sorry. Like, oops. And then she's not smart anymore. You know what I mean? Just for that moment. But this ties back again to the weird phenomenon of this film, which is in that moment, I am expecting her to be playing a game. I'm expecting her to be... Me too. I was expecting that. actively duplicitous, but it comes to nothing except out there on the fringes of the internet, if you're willing to take (laughs) out your machete (laughs) and fight your way through the vines and brambles into Reddit, you can find people postulating that in fact it is all a con by Carmen that she is the one who wins out at the end etc 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 and the film does leave enough space that if you want it you can go looking for it (laughs) but yeah it's not not super compelling yeah I think it's underserved speaking of underserved character motivation this is where Eddie decides that no no he is going to take the cue he's going to go out by himself he's going to go to the local club he's going to put a hundred dollars on the table in what is maybe the most baller move I've ever seen in my life? And just wait for someone to come up. Yeah. <laughs> I like that sequence where he's playing with, you know, the the harmless local, I guess. Mm-hmm. And this all leads, of course, into Forrest Whitaker. By the time that Vincent and Carmen show up, he is yeah. playing Forrest Whitaker. Yes. We mentioned earlier in the show, what a terrific performance It's a great performance. It really is. Yeah. What are we to take from this? What are we to take from the hustler getting hustled? What are we to take from, again, an odd, spacious exchange of dialogue toward the end when Paul Newman is asking him repeatedly are you a hustler are you a hustler are you a hustler and he's not answering when I'm talking about conspiracy theories by the way Mm -hmm. that weird last line do I need to lose some weight that's a weird line Uh it's off key it's out of kilter it's maybe just a product of that character being a little odd it may be intended to disarm Eddie but some people on the internet read it as a direct reference to Minnesota Fats the antagonist from the first oh. story, the antagonist from The Hustler, who Eddie just refers to all the way through consistently and unpleasantly as the fat man. Oh. So there is some speculation out there on the internet mm-hmm. that perhaps this ties back. Perhaps this guy was sent there by Minnesota Fats, sure, was trained yeah. by Minnesota Fats. Uh, I, I thought the line was almost playful in a taunting sort of way, a very like cat and mouse sort of way. Mm-hmm. That's the, really the only way I took it. Of course, not thinking about Minnesota Fats or about The Hustler because I hadn't really seen which, which much you of wouldn't, it. Of right? Course, yeah, yeah. yeah. So to me, it just r- read as a uh, as this guy toying with him. Yeah, yeah. which I liked. It's so I liked strange. him putting Eddie on the back foot yeah. since Eddie is coming in as like you know the, this king energy, and then he knows everything, and he's the mentor. And to see him get 
kind of handed, well, yeah, to take a dose of his own medicine or whatever it is, I thought was interesting. And crucially, it's not losing that's the problem. He's very comfortable with losing at pool. He loses at pool all the time. He maybe loses at pool more than he wins at pool. It's the fact that he couldn't read this guy. It's the fact that he didn't see the hustle coming. Because he He thought that he was running the room and wasn't. Mm. And you can see, I think, how that would shake a man like Eddie's confidence. Yeah, definitely. What do you think of this character arc? You know, we talked earlier about the fact that Vincent does not have a character arc. Right, a discern- no. Or I guess there is like an obvious and discernible one. I just don't really understand it. He certainly starts dressing better by the end of the movie. But maybe the, yeah. maybe the character arc is, I have no money, to I have money. Basically, yeah. I mean, he does. And I, I mean, he does in the end throw the tournament and just decide to go into the green rooms, they called it, to yeah. make all the yeah, money. The practice yeah. Rooms, yeah, the practice rooms to make all the money, which is what was originally pitched to him by Eddie. You know, let's go to the tournament. And if no one sees you coming, you you go out in a few rounds, then you really clean up in the back rooms, leave with more than, you know, the winner yeah, walks yeah. out with. Because everyone thinks that you're a mark. Yeah. Which is kind of, I guess, the opposite of Eddie's progress in this story, right? Eddie starts off as the hustler and through the movement of the plot, learns a genuine passion for pool. Like, he just wants to win. Yeah, then he wants to win. So That's they kind of switch places, I guess, in that way? To like, an extent, I think. That's yeah, although even at the end, as they face off, it's about the quality of the pool. That is what Eddie is demanding from Vincent at the end is, right. I just want your best game. That's you can't handle my best game. You can't handle my best game in a weird bit of foreshadowing. Weird. weird. That line would yeah. not have hit the ear as hard as uh-huh. it does now in 1986. But yeah, now it's uh, familiar to us from a future (laughs) film that we'll talk about in just a few weeks. Yeah. So it's at this point, his confidence shaken that Eddie offers Vincent and Carmen a stake. He just offers them thousands of dollars so that they can go to Atlantic City by themselves. He's just buying himself out of this particular awful situation in which he's found himself. Vincent, of course, refuses it. Carmen, of course, accepts it. And then they disappear from the story for, yeah, a good 20 minutes, I'd say. Yeah, none of this worked for me. I thought that all of it was a long con. Is it a long con? Did it end up being a long con? This is this is the problem with the film. Right? Some people will say yes. Textually, no. Textually, right? okay. it is not. However, there is enough space. There is enough weirdness. There are enough odd fragmentary lines. Mm-hmm. That some people look at this and start connecting dots. Right. Some people have the, you know, cork board with red thread on yeah. it. Yeah. Otherwise, it just feels like a temper tantrum to me. It's very, like, odd toddler energy all of a sudden. Well, no, I think that we can read his real disappointment, his real shock in this moment that he comes into the film believing that he can run the table. He comes into the film believing that he can manipulate anyone into doing anything. That's how he presents himself to Carmen the first time they meet in the bar. It's already what we meet him doing as he's selling whiskey. Right. He's very successful at that because he's got the hustle. Then he has his desire to play pool and be excellent, to win the game, rekindled by his time with Vincent. He gets to see that actually winning is important too, mm-hmm. that it's not just a means of making money. It's also about the glory and the contest and the sure, win. and excellence. And both of those things come crashing into each other and into the body of Forrest Whitaker in this moment. Hmm. He doesn't come out to this bar to test himself. He comes out to this bar to demonstrate excellence. That's mm-hmm. the cocky move of coming in with this killer cue, putting it down on the table, slapping $100 down and just waiting. Right. Because he knows what is going to happen because he can read people. In a very short span of time, in front of his protege and the hot girl that they're dragging along. Yeah. 
he demonstrates that he cannot read people. He demonstrates that he at has least not this one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at least this one, he has lost his touch. Hmm. So I can see in that moment fear, and I can see doubt, and I can see something even more significant, yeah. perhaps like an existential something about mm. the nature of who he really is. Does something similar happen in The Hustler? Presumably, it would have to, right? It feels like it would be a callback. No, not no? not really. The thing that he learns in The Hustler is that the will to win was inside of him all along. The recurring beat in The Hustler is that men lose because they want to, because secretly deep down they oh. want to. Secretly deep down they can't handle winning. Uh-huh. It puts too much pressure on you. It's too frightening. It's too scary. It's about developing like courage and dedication and will mm-hmm. and that makes you unstoppable that's the lesson that he learns and he only stops playing pool because his life is threatened if he ever walks into a pool hall which by the way nah seems like I know it's fine 25 yeah. years have passed and maybe that's just fine right but it's such a major plot point in the hustler that you would at least expect a little yeah. mention of it unless we read forrest whitaker as being that right unless oh. we read this as being the hand either directly or indirectly of minnesota fats Sounds like you gotta want it. I think that's a lot of this film. Yeah. Yeah. From there, though, we move into one of the most visually surprising and inventive sequences in the film, which is his training montage. Did you enjoy this? I'm afraid I don't have a satisfying answer. Like, yeah, sure, I liked it fine, but I wasn't as moved by it as I usually am by that kind of montage. The montage that I liked the most was uh, when he's actually playing in the tournament with, I think, Vince, and we get all those really fast cuts of the pool. Sure. Yeah, That's my yeah. favorite like use of montage as a technique. In this particular moment, I don't know. It's there was something kind of sad about it, I think. Oh, really? Yeah. I think especially about like the optometrist one where he's getting his eyes yeah, checked and whatever. Yeah. And and like there's something He has those new, very, very 1970s glasses. Very 70s yeah. glasses that are so darkly tinted that they're comical to me. Which is almost like tie one of his arms behind his back as an actor right it's like take away his superpower as an actor which is incredibly expressive eyes absolutely yeah i i i I don't know that this one lands for me what what about you did you enjoy it i mean i like the way that it's shot it Mm -hmm. is very visually i think uh inventive and arresting not always effectively you know some of them are just obviously clever tricks the moment when he rises out of the pool after he has been swimming like into the optometrist setup yeah is kind of Okay, it's a little showy, it's a little fancy, it's a little clever, whatever. But, I mean, I'm a sucker for training montages. Yeah, I like the idea that he's getting his game back. I like that we're showing that he's getting his game back. That it's more than just the will to succeed. It's actually, you know, yeah, skill and craft. Perfect. Yeah. Sure, sure. So That's I like that. Point. I like seeing his dedication. But to me, it feels a little distant. It feels a little cold. Like, maybe we're not supposed to want this for Eddie. Maybe we're not supposed to feel good about him getting back in the game after all this time. But what do you think? Are you compelled by that? Are are you happy for him to have rediscovered his passion? Yes. I think I find watching him play more satisfying than watching Vince play. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Just just Well, because this whole idea of, oh, I can't do it anymore, but I can coach the new young buck works with a lot of sports that are very physically challenging. Sure. The pool's not that physically challenging. It's really like a skills game. And there's just no reason to me that somebody like Paul Newman, who's looking awfully fit, I think, and pretty sharp yeah. in his suits and scarves, wouldn't be able to play pool. Who is, by the way, as old in this film as Tom Cruise is right now. 
Wow. So as yeah, good as right? Paul Newman looks playing pool, yeah. <laughs> it's no Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Jumping Part out of, 1. <laughs> yeah, helicopters and running across buildings and through glass and whatever it is. Yeah, absolutely. Again, this comes back to this uh, confused message Very of the film, confused. right? Confused we, we protagonism. Yes. say profound things hoping that they are going to stick, hoping that they will be treated as a moral message in the framework of the film, even if not to the audience entirely. Mm -hmm. But none of them really land, except for one. And we'll get to that in just a moment. It comes from a very unexpected direction, which I like a lot. Anyway, let's fast forward to the tournament. Eddie wins his first match. And then in the bar that evening, he sees Vincent and Carmen working together to hustle another player, which is the moment when we see how much Vincent has changed, when he berates Carmen for not taking this man for the $2,000 that he had right. and settling for $1,500. Mm -hmm. He's turned into something darker, I guess. Yeah. But again, we're not going to address that. Nope. We're not going to wrestle with that dimension of his character. Mm. It's just going to be an ongoing element, I Well, suppose. and this is perfectly, well, maybe not perfectly, but skillfully playing the game that Eddie taught him. So Exactly right. Yeah. But we deal with neither the consequence to Vincent's character or... Eddie's culpability in turning right. this young man into a monster because the movie fundamentally doesn't believe that doesn't this young man is a monster. Doesn't think that they're monsters, yeah. Right? Yeah. He doesn't That's think that this thing. is, yes. you know, artifice and, and theft. Mm -hmm. They treat it like it is a game. And, and maybe in some element it is, right? I, I don't really understand sports gambling. I don't have that thing that makes people want to gamble oh, i don't no. really understand yeah, the appeal but, of it but yeah and taking advantage of people is taking advantage of people and taking them for suckers which yeah, is the whole especially thing for, trying to for do. deception yeah. yeah we breezed past it because we were covering something else in the scene the earlier moment in the pool hall when vincent wants to take pity on the guy who's had the oh, tracheotomy yeah, absolutely it's like no this guy's breathing through his throat i feel yeah. bad you know yeah Eddie, that was better hardens him to the point of getting him beaten up yeah to teach him a lesson this is this is the fruits of that poison tree. Right. But the film is disinterested in reckoning with it. Definitely. Is this just part of Scorsese's, I don't know, a kind of romantic cynicism, right? Yeah. A, a the, romantic the ideal man. that people will just fall into into a mundane kind of tragedy? I guess. I'm you don't look you don't look enchanted I'm by not, it. <laughs> I just don't like following this kind of man for so long. Like I just like in Wolf of Wall Street, we do something very similar, but it's so heightened and elevated and silly yeah. that it's a romp. This is not a romp. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's just very gritty and unwholesome in a way that just doesn't appeal to me and my sensibilities. But has these spaces like the interior of a cathedral where there are moments of stillness and silence into which you can pour your interpretation, your faith, your belief, and come out with something that feels transcendent, that comes out with something that... Is this just a hollow space into which we are interpositioning profundity? Is that the jerkiest question I've ever asked you on a podcast? <laughs> I mean, there's no answering it. <laughs> I'm leaving this in. My humility is, lest I become <laughs> Vincent, I have to leave that question on the record. Okay. <laughs> Oh, and maybe go wash my hands. <laughs> Vincent and Carmen offer to let Eddie in on the scheme, but he demurs. He has a game in the morning. He's here to play it straight. The next day, Vincent beats Grady and Eddie beats Julian, which is very satisfying. Both of those matches, very obvious, very yeah. pro forma almost, but enormously emotionally satisfying at least. And of course, their next match is against each other. You're absolutely right. This sequence is... Wow, powerful, fast-moving, high-octane. It's, cool. it's, it's yeah. really impressive cinematography and, and performatively, and too. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. Eddie wins and congratulates a petulant Vincent after the match is over. 
But the next morning, as he is relaxing in his hotel room with Janelle, yeah. the kids come to visit and hand him an envelope full of $8,000 because the con worked out. Yes, this is where we find out that Vincent dumped, he calls it. Yeah. He let Eddie win. Took a very public fall. Yes, yes. And shows how obvious it was and exactly when he knew how he's going to do it and how he had to make it look just right. And of course, he knew it was going to be the five. That's the worst thing is that he demonstrates a greater capability at pool in losing like this than he would have in winning. Or at least that's how he sees it and how Eddie takes it. And how Eddie takes it too. Yeah. Which is is a nice moment to see kind of the, the light go from Eddie's eyes. Again, I'm not enamored with either of these two gentlemen, so I kind of find I get kind of a smug <laughs> smile to see this happen. Oh, a little to bit. see like, an well, old man get broken by circumstances. What was gonna happen? You taught him to do this, old man. You but know, that's the point. He again didn't read it. It's he's didn't not heartbroken by losing at pool. Right, right. He's but heartbroken like, because the... he didn't see it. That that is a that is a good point. Yeah. That like that's his bit of magic and skill that he's lost is his ability to read a room and read someone's motive and intention. Yeah. And then he doesn't have that anymore. He obviously gets rocked back on his heels by this revelation and the next morning as he is competing in the next round, he forfeits. Before he even competes, yeah. he forfeits. Yeah. He puts away his cue and then very publicly returns an envelope stuffed with eight thousand dollars to yeah. Vincent in the front row of the stands. <laughs> Kind of baller. I, that, I don't know was, how the world amusing. of professional pool works, but, but... I feel like somebody had an idea of what was going on. Yeah, someone's yeah. probably going to investigate that. Mm-hmm. Some steward is definitely mm-hmm. going to have to look into that, I feel like. <laughs> and this, for me, is the absolute high point here at the end of the film, and it is all Janelle. She yeah, is I do like Janelle. so happy that he's made this choice. She wants to just get out of there. She's a big fan of character, is the line, and I love that. Mm-hmm. I really like that... The film, at least, is is seeming to present an alternative to this dark path that has been prescribed for Eddie. Yeah. I mean, I, I like her very much. I like the performance, too. Um, it, it's it's hard because at this point, I'm, I'm obviously hadn't, like, checked out on the film, but I have checked out on these people. Sure. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. So I don't know that I was compelled by her necessarily. Yeah. I went back as an experiment and watched just the last 10 minutes again. Uh-huh. After not watching the preceding, you know, hour and 40. Right. Uh, and I've got to say, I think it plays much more powerfully in isolation than it does mm. inheriting the sluggish pace sure. of the preceding act. Yeah. I think that the end of this film is actually deceptively strong. It's just that last moment of irresolution. Right. And everything that preceded it kind of weighs it down uncomfortably. But I do find that moment to be very powerful. I find that moment to be very lovely and tragic because Eddie does not go away with her. Right. He does not take this route out. Instead, he wants to test Vincent again. As Eddie says, it's even, but it ain't settled, which I think is a really interesting, and again, another of these great lines. He and Vincent need to play out one last game. And if he loses this game, then they'll play out another last game and another last game and another last game because he is never going to stop being this, Mm. as tragic as it is. We should acknowledge, as I mentioned earlier, that this is the scene in which Carmen disappears. Yeah, She walks into the room with Vincent, carrying his pool cue, and then is gone. Mm. Awful. Too bad. Yeah. A real whiff right there at the end. Mm -hmm. And that, with Eddie proclaiming, I'm back. Is the end of the film. It just, it's actually freeze frames, right? It actually, literally. You know, what we're talking about how old fashioned zooms are. Yeah. We got a freeze frame at the end of a film. Yeah. Oof. 86, I literally you guys. thought for a second that 
the internet had gone out. I was just not at all ready for that to be the end of the film. And that's it. And you can see why people want to build conspiracy theories. You can see why people sure. want to go on Reddit and figure out the meaning of this oh so ambiguous ending. And I got to tell you, I'm, I'm as susceptible to that as anyone. I'm as open to that mm-hmm. as anyone. I like smart interpretations of texts. I just don't think there's any there there. Yeah, I would I would agree. I think that's smart. I don't think that there's a secret hustle just under the surface. Yes. That gives this film greater dimensionality than it would otherwise possess. And I know that we've been hard on it. Here's the problem. We come to the end of it and I think, yeah, but Paul Newman is undeniable. Of course he is. Of and course he this is. is. Yeah. And we both really enjoyed the performance of Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio as well. I think she's terrific. I think this is a good cruise performance. I know that people don't basically think that yeah, this is a good cruise performance. Yeah, sure. I think it's perfectly yeah, good. Perfectly fine. Any other wrap up thoughts here on The Color of Money? Yes. Can we talk about the Cadillac? Oh, my God. How did we get this far? <laughs> The secret recurring theme in Tom Cruise movies of the 1980s. Amazing cars. Amazing cars. Yes. I love this. We had that Bel Air from Losing It. We had Kelly McGillis's Porsche. Uh (laughs) We had also the Porsche and Whiskey business, which we didn't like so much. It was supposed to be great. Yeah, Yeah. but was just pretty ugly. This car is outstanding. I agree. A beautiful piece of work. Mm -hmm. Really terrific. My grandfather had Cadillacs, like two or three of them. Wow. Because he would buy, and they all looked like that. Uh, I don't think he had a a leather interior. His were all the velvet interiors. But he had a white one with the burgundy velvet interior and a gold one with the gold and... A gold one with the gold interior? Yeah. With a like, gold velvet interior? Of, yeah. I mean, whatever. What, what do you call that? It's not really true I don't velvet. Know. But like Buicks <laughs> and Buicks and Cadillacs both like have this like... Is it like a kind of interior or is it... No. It's just, it's just a step above whatever okay. the usual cloth interior is for a car. It just looks... I'll, I'll the best go looking can, around on the internet and if I can, can find sure. images, I'll drop them in the show notes because that sounds <laughs> frankly amazing. <laughs> Yeah, what do you they, think? Were, they were lovely cars. I drove them a couple of times wow. when I was just like 16 and learning how to drive. I remember being very nervous because they seemed so huge. My do first they car was. handle like tugboats? I can only imagine that they're, they are just vast and swimmy and very yes. soft in their suspension. Yes, that is absolutely yeah. true. Yeah, they are very comfortable cars. But uh, yeah, it's funny because even now I smell pipe smoke. He was always smoking <laughs> pipe when we were in that Cadillac. But anyway, uh, I love that you're leaving this episode on a note of of emotional (laughs) connection and and catharsis here. (laughs) Do you think that it adds an interesting element to Eddie's character that he is so successful, that he is so wealthy, that his whiskey trade is as successful as it is? That it's not for him, as it was in The Hustler, about, you know, surviving. It's about making 10 bucks so you can have a hotel room for the night back in 1962. Does it work for you that... The pursuit of one's purpose, the pursuit of excellence is, as it, as it so infrequently is in American stories in particular, separated from the pursuit of wealth. Do you think it is? I think so. He doesn't need the money. He doesn't hustle because he, he needs, loves it. But he has, he, it's that line, right? That and money. The, the way he sells money bourbon one is, is twice as sweet as money earned. Yeah. It's effective and I hate it, as I think may be the answer. Ah. I just, again, this is not. So, Oh, inversely, it makes you less sympathetic to him oh, because yeah. he doesn't have to do this. Yes. I see. Okay. Yeah. No, I think he's a bad man. You know, I said that Tom Cruise is now the age that Newman was when they made this. Mm. Maybe it's time for The Hustler 3. <laughs> Maybe. So ultimately, I think that is the resolution, that there are some interesting elements to this film, that it doesn't mm-hmm. really put a major foot wrong, at least in terms of its technical execution. Sure. 
feels as though it doesn't deliver on its promise, but in fairness, it also doesn't explicitly make that promise. There's just something about it that feels like it ought to be more than it is. And that's a tough thing to grade. It's a tough thing to judge. It's certainly a tough thing to put on the list. To put in our list, yeah. When we're thinking about the list and we're thinking about our emotional response here at the end Mm -hmm. of the film, I'm most reminded for you of your response to Risky Business. I think you are as dissatisfied with the fact that there isn't more depth and complexity to The Color of Money. You're as disappointed as you were when you realized that Risky Business was not, in fact, all a dream. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's very, like very you've been similar. misguided, These right? These two, I think, could go side by side for me. What, what, what's on either side of Risky Business right now? A Risky Business is currently number four on the list. The Outsiders is number three, and All the Right Moves is number mm. five. All the Right Moves also a kind of betrayal of its premise at the end. Just a, just a pat, simple resolution uh, yeah. that's I, very dissatisfying. I liked it more, though, especially for something that was also doing that, like, gritty, realistic, cold winter kind of idea. There's some shared DNA, I think, in those two films in the way that they at Sports least movie DNA. Feel. Yeah, Absolutely, definitely. yeah, yeah. Um, but Except I, that Vincent is not our protagonist in this film. That's yeah, the problem, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I think that's a really comfortable place for me is to put it between Risky Business and All the Right Moves. What about you? Yeah, I want to argue that it should be higher on the list. I want to argue that it should be higher than Risky Business. I want to argue really? that it should be higher than The Outsiders. Scorsese is a technically skilled craftsman of cinema. I think he is terrific at that thing, while, again, not really loving his storytelling inclinations. I think Newman is fantastic. I think Cruz is better in this film than he is in either Risky Business or All the Right Moves. But ultimately, I think you might be right. I I think for me, it's either, yeah, right above or right below Risky Business. So if you're feeling that comparison with All the Right Moves more than you're feeling that comparison with The Outsiders. I mean, it's interesting. Scorsese and Coppola, like, we're we're both giving us this. I had such high expectations for you. Hmm. Well, let's try this. If I said that we absolutely had to watch one of these two films tomorrow, which would you pick? Would you rather watch The Color of Money again or would you rather watch Risky Business again? Risky Business. Really? Yeah. Wow. Because it's at least, again, it's at least silly. It's at least... You know, sure. a little bit more lighthearted, and it makes me laugh a couple of times. This movie's really dismal. I, I hear that. I want to advocate for how electric that first act is, and I want to advocate uh, that for is true. how that terrific is true. the dialogue is. The script is undeniably better. Weird associations, actually, in the soundtrack, because we are still very much in mid-80s soft rock. Sure. <laughs> it didn't escape my notice that we opened with Phil Collins, Phil Collins in this damn movie, I let noticed. me tell you what. <laughs> We also get the worst Eric Clapton song on the soundtrack. <laughs> and then, yeah, Werewolves of London is also right. such a weird and, and specifically Scorsese kind of needle drop moment. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I'm happy to uh, take your lead here and put it in right under Risky Business, right above All the Right Moves, the new number five on the list. Okay, I feel good about that. Well, that is going to do it for this episode of The Last Star in Hollywood. Thanks so much for sticking with us, you guys. Thanks so much for making it to the end of this discussion. This has been a tough one, I think. A little bit for us, I think. We yeah. like to love things, we and like we just didn't love it. Love yeah. Exactly. Next week, we're going to, well, we're going to have strong feelings about 1988's Cocktail, because that's <laughs> what's up next. And if you guys haven't seen Cocktail, definitely watch it in advance, because that will be yeah. a fun adventure for you. And then you'll know what Elizabeth is talking about when we get to the trailer game next week, which is going to be <laughs> a, a wild ride. Yeah. <laughs> this show, everything we do here is possible thanks to you guys on Patreon. Elizabeth, yes. would you like to thank our superstar supporters by name? I would love to. I am thrilled and delighted to thank 
the brilliant Leslie Skipa, who we Skipa. so adore. Yes. <laughs> uh, as well as Louise in Dallas, who is a longtime listener from the old days. Hi, Louise. fantastic. Uh, Megan Louder, who has her own delightful podcast. A better podcaster than us, <laughs> I think it's fair to say. Uh, it's called I Think You're Going to Like This, and I Think You're Going to Like It. I so. think you're going to like it. Yeah, you guys. <laughs> you should check great. it out. It's, it's delightful. A, it's so funny. It's so warm. It's yes. so lovely. Yes. Megan's a star. Absolutely. I completely agree. Uh, and also Phoebe. So Thank you, Phoebe. Yes. Who was, I think, also been around for a while. I think we've all been around for a while. We've been around for about an hour and three quarters, believe it or not, just listening to this podcast. So we're older now than we've ever been. And that sounds like a great way to end this week's episode, guys. (laughs) Before we go, though, we should probably mention that last week, in addition to the Top Gun episode, which was a ton of fun for us. So fun. We also released our Patreon bonus episode on Dirty Dancing. That's two hours of us having the time of our lives. That was accidental. No one is going to believe I me that that was accidental. I saw the light in you your eyes as you realized what you were saying. <laughs> that podcast is available now over on the Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash laststarpod. That's going to do it for us. We'll be back next week with more with Cocktail. Until then, thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.